this is a fun one for me, and I'll I'll explain why as we go along. But I I, I want to say that it was a little bit funny that Tyler Weeb and I did a podcast on this yesterday and and really hit the application or the practicality hard and it, it what's ironic is then that prompted me to think well let's let's actually dig into some of the research i want to see what what studies have been done so almost in reverse order i i i create a podcast and blab about this you know yesterday and then i decided to go out oh, let's go figure it out and see what's scientific about it so you guys are going to get a better uh, I, I think bit of information and some some answers and some extra knowledge that uh, that may not have been articulated yesterday in our podcast. But I'm going to actually cover some of that because I think it ties in really really well. So the, the biggest question is we had decided that this was going to be a topic for our first mind muscle connection podcast. Is you know I wanted to talk about what it means to even have some level of self efficacy if we're if we're going to be communicating to people who train extremely hard, who want their best health, they want some kind of sustainable habit set to, to keep their body composition where they want, to keep that edge when it comes to performance goals. They're, the thing that I see missing in a lot of my clients is simply a level of, you, you could call it a lot of different things. You could say emotional maturity versus people who are extremely emotionally mature people who feel like there is a sense of control and balance in their goals or people who don't, who live in a lot of impulsivity and chaos. So when, when we were deciding before I even looked up some of this research to do our first podcast on, on that topic, I still had the, the task of deciding how, you know, where do we look? What, what's the best category to even dive into? So uh, emotional intelligence came to mind, but I thought that's that's probably carrying some some unknowns for a lot of people. So let's almost create the the parallel pseudonym of self awareness, and that also becomes a little bit ironic as you see some of the research because that is truly the heart of emotional intelligence. So uh, if if you guys may recall, I'm gonna I'm gonna skip ahead so you can just see this. You know what study I looked at. Uh, Daniel Goleman, Dr. Daniel Goleman is a Harvard psychologist who became very, very famous for his book in 1995 titled Emotional Intelligence. And then he later wrote a book called Social Intelligence, and I highly recommend them. Uh, I get asked a lot uh, to create kind of a book list. You know, Joe, if you could read one book or what are your top five books or 10 books? And, uh, and this would be one of those always in my top five, emotional intelligence. It's, it's incredibly impactful because it teaches why, you know, essentially how the brain works, which I'm going to get into here, and how we even think about our thoughts, how we think cognitively about our emotions, and how that all drives our behavior. So if you looked up just research on emotional intelligence, you'll see Daniel Goleman's name and face all over everything. But but there it, it was it was just starting to become a field, maybe five years prior. And then because he made it so uh so well known and and had just you know massive just millions of copies bestseller sold, um, there was a flurry of research because a lot of people wanted to to figure this out. And as scientists often do, they looked at Goldman and said, 
like this guy's just pulling this out of his ass. There's nothing in the literature about this. There's nothing in classic psychological training that even uses this phrase. He's totally making it up. We don't even know if it, there's any validity to it. So there was a lot of backlash. There was a lot of controversy. And, and if you look up some of the research, you'll see a lot of it is just right around that time. So from 1995 or so to 2005, it seems like all the research was done there. And then it kind of settled down a little bit. But this particular study creates, it's not a meta-analysis, it's an actual uh, qualitative survey study, but, but it really does give some great background and some historicity to the whole concept. So, so that's why I chose this one. I'll, I'll explain, um, you know, first of all, so there's, there's Goldman's book, if you guys are interested, the, the uh, again, just the seminal book on emotional intelligence. Would also recommend social intelligence. I'm a social psychology guy. So those, those, those two should be on your reading list or uh, as I had, I'd listened to them originally in audio form. So the, the first thing that I think anybody who was at least contending or criticizing or trying to figure out what Goldman was saying, they had to ask the question, what, what does this even matter? Like, like, who is this going to impact? If you are going to contend that there is a different kind of intelligence, because to this point, we have always measured intelligence as just cognitive ability, your ability to think. And here's what's really interesting, as often is the case, now 20 or so, 25 years removed from his book, you have an awful lot of new research being done on the fact that, that emotion really drives some of our best behavior. You guys may remember the Friday research review we did on, on the, the moral psychology uh, of decision-making and how under fMRI studies, people who had more of an emotional response, so again, emotional intelligence, to a dilemma, to a question, they always did the best. They always came up with the best solution. They always stuck to their values. In our context of body composition and performance goals, they stayed on track. They weren't the ones who caved. They weren't the ones who gave up. They weren't the ones who binged. So it's the person who doesn't think cerebrally quite as much but they've just simply made that decision one time. I am not a person who binges. I am not a person who quits. I am not a person fill in the blank. And so they don't have to think about it. It's now become a one-time decision that has become an internal limbic system, emotion-based value. And that's, that's a lot of where Goldman was going when he came up with this whole concept. And again, I mean, I don't think it was, you know, Everybody will give him the credit for being the guy who created this because he wrote the the seminal book on it. But uh, there there were there were a lot of other people who were heading in that direction and already writing about it. So this particular study had 107 participants, just a little bit tilted toward the female side, but pretty well balanced. Uh, nice age range from late teens to 64 years old, average age 35, and. You guys have encountered this before in our Friday research reviews, but they used scales and research resources already in existence, which I think has a lot of value because these things show up in other research. Uh, they're cited often, and every time you put them through a test, you get another chance to see if they're really going to stand up to scrutiny. So it becomes a very, very valid scientific instrument 
or it's proven not so and it gets left behind. Uh, that's helpful, especially with this kind of qualitative survey research, because you're not, you, you just don't have to hope it works. If you create your own list of questions and you think, well, I'm going to, I'm going to try and, you know, be as unbiased as possible. And here's what I'm trying to find out. If you just create this yourself, no matter how good of a researcher you are, the first time you put that through its paces, you're, you're going you're gonna to see the weaknesses in it. You're going to see the strengths. You're going to see the weaknesses. You're probably going to want to fine tune it. So these are tried and true proven uh, instruments to measure some level of emotional stability in people. So, so I'll, I'll briefly go through the four. The, the trait meta mood scale uh, is, a, is a questionnaire that, that really describes uh, you know, how people can focus their emotional attention are they, do they have a level of clarity about their emotions? Uh, do they have an ability to repair? If they feel like something has gone wrong, they, they feel very sad, they feel grief, they feel anger, they feel anything. Do they have an ability to kind of focus on that, deal with it and repair? Or does something just completely stump them? Then the, uh, the Toronto Alexithemia scale is the ability to even cognitively perceive your emotion. If, if you're into much self-help, you, you might uh, know the phrase, um, is, is it, now I'm going to forget it. Um, just, it's name it and something. I want to say name it and claim it, but that's a religious context. It's, uh, oh, name it to tame it, something like that. So when, when somebody is in a, in kind of an emotional uh, exacerbated state, and a psychologist just asks them to name what emotion they're feeling. And then sometimes with a follow-up question, okay, you feel, you feel bad. Well, describe bad. You know, I feel despair. Well, it, it even showing them a list, like here's a list of all of those negative emotions. Which one do you feel? Just the ability to name it and identify it specifically has been shown to reduce those emotional triggers. I mean, what's happening biometrically in your body by up to 50% in some cases. And so just the, you know, name it and tame it, being able to just, just have that ability to cognitively think about your emotions. Then there's the positive and negative affect scale. So this is a very simple scale that, that basically just tries to discern whether you're a positive person or negative person. Is the glass half full or the glass half empty. And, and so this becomes important. This is a big part of this particular study. And then there is the satisfaction with life scale. And this is what they use as the dependent variable in the study. So if you remember the title of the study, Emotional Intelligence and Life Satisfaction, uh, these particular researchers were, you know, they needed to say, we're not, we're not going to just try and prove or disprove emotional intelligence, because at the time of the study, I think it was like 2001, you know, they were still questioning whether this is even a valid thing to talk about. So they, they wanted to see, you know, what does it even mean with, with a lot of thoughts as researchers and psychologists? They thought, okay, if this is a thing, if this is going to play out and actually have a place in the field of psychology, then better emotional intelligence, as Dr. Goldman and others would claim, has to improve your life. If you have better emotional intelligence and if it's something that you can improve, then it better be improving something in your life. And so again, they went to a scale that was already in existence, which is your satisfaction with life. 
So very self-explanatory. Uh, it's it's mood versus emotion. It's it's more of the mature ability to say, you know, yes, I'm happy with life or I'm not. So again, that's the dependent variable. So they use these other scales, all of those questions to then relate some of those traits and behaviors and thoughts and, and abilities versus inabilities to regulate emotion to their satisfaction with life. So that's, that's the whole content of this study. If there is such a thing as emotional intelligence, if we can move the needle one direction or the other, then it, it has to improve or show lesser quality of life, satisfaction with life, based on, on how much emotional intelligence you really have. So uh, the, the study itself, I'm, I'm not going to spend a ton of time because it's pretty cut and dry, but I think the practical implications for us are, are where the, the money is kind of on this, this particular subject. So let me, let me back up a little bit and just talk a little bit about you know, why, why these people were even claiming or criticizing that this was something that had to be proven. Emotional intelligence has been theoretically related to several important, several important human values, including life satisfaction. The quality of interpersonal relationships and success in occupations that involve considerable reasoning with emotional information, such as those involving creativity, leadership, sales, and psychotherapy. Furthermore, valid measures of emotional intelligence may aid in the assessment of emotional deficits that are found fundamental to affective disorders, such as anxiety and depression and other construct, uh, constructs. So the, the entire goal of the study was, was again, just to see if, if they could show any particular um, you know, control over this. If, if, if there is such a thing as emotional intelligence, let's, let's at least create some definitions, see if through this research we can, we can define it better and, and see if it does in fact improve our, our, our lives in any measurable way. So here's what's interesting and what, what kind of guided this study is that there were, you guys may know there are all kinds of personality scales, right? From the Minnesota, classic Minnesota scale to, you know, now it's very um, kind of in vogue. Some people have brought, brought it back to talk about the big five personality traits, which is a really uh, interesting test you guys could all take in just minutes online. Um, but of the five personality traits, one is neuroticism. I'll see if I can remember all five. Um, so there's neuroticism, extroversion, which you see here. There's introversion. Um, there's conscientiousness. And I think the other one is maybe open-mindedness or something like that. Um, so the, the trait of neuroticism is kind of like conscientiousness. So so conscientiousness is, you know, hey, I've, I've, I'm organized. I've got, I've got a couple of my, you know, displays up over here with some research I might read from in a little bit. I had my PowerPoint ready. I've got my microphone set. Like I'm, I'm an organized guy. Whenever I take this test, I'm like 98 to 100 on the conscientious. But neuroticism is that to a degree that ruins your life. Like I can't sleep at night and I'm you know, I, I have to drive back home 17 times to make sure I lock the door. And I think everybody else in the world is always wrong. And they, they if they're not doing things my way, the world's going to fall apart. Like that's, that's neuroticism. Then there's introversion and extroversion. But, but one of the things that I really thought was interesting is that some of these, some of these texts, some of this research had already linked neuroticism, that high, high level of anxiety 
and extroversion as negative uh, impacts on uh, you know how we can regulate our emotion. And, and I want to talk about that just for a second because it's going to come back in today's information to, to really talk about these two concepts of emotion regulation and self-efficacy. Emotional regulation is just what it sounds like. You know, I can control my emotions. I don't. I don't just flip off the handle. Like I can, I can sit there and I can process and I can think and I can, I can control how I behave despite how I'm feeling. It's, it's not just having a poker face as in your like stuffing feelings down. It's, it's just the fact that I can, I can step out of the moment and I can back up and I can consider what's happening. I don't, I don't just impulsively charge forward. And what's interesting about it being linked to extroversion and you guys may, this may come to mind with yourselves or other people, but I would, I would encourage you to think about other people first because it's, it's not easy to self-analyze often. Think of the person who's so extroverted that they never shut up. They always, they always just keep talking. Whatever comes to their brain immediately comes out of their mouth. Um, and they're just, they're, they're just frenetic, like all the time. There's just like, they never shut up. They never stop doing anything. That is an aggressively neurotic external processor who has kind of a high level of self-absorption because they, they don't realize like, Hey, other people may actually want to talk or may have some thoughts or feelings and it's not all about you. So this is a person who I think it makes a lot of sense would have trouble with emotional regulation. And uh, if we move on to these other two things, difficulty in identifying and describing feelings, limited imaginal capacity and externally oriented styles of thinking, as I just mentioned, maladaptive, maladaptive emotional regulation and insecure attachment styles. Uh, an insecure attachment style goes hand in hand with what I'm describing because you feel like you constantly have to be the center of attention. You know, you, 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 you're not secure otherwise. So this is all previous research to this study showing that these kinds of people, highly neurotic, highly external, uh, they tend to not be able to uh, control their emotions, understand their emotions feel any level of self-efficacy or control over it. And therefore, they test very low on, on life satisfaction. So there's another couple of words that came up in this research is, is rumination. You know, they just get stuck in these patterns of everything's negative and everything bad that could happen is going to happen. And um, I, I, I spoke to a young adult recently and, and a couple things came out in this conversation one is, no, I'm not going to have children. Why would I pass on my mental illnesses to, to children? And I know this person well enough to know that this person does not have any mental illnesses, but that's just catastrophic feeling, you know, because I've had a bad day because in my privileged, entitled first world life, I'm not getting everything I want. I'm going to throw a tantrum and, and I'm going to just blame it on everybody else. I'm going to, I'm going to say I have mental illness and, you know, woe is me. And so again, somebody who's got a lot of insecurity and, and not very good with emotional regulation. All right. So let's get into what this particular study found. 
So remember those three different scales, the things that they were looking at and how they were tying it back to that dependent variable of, of life satisfaction. So the, uh, the, the meta mood scale where they were looking at uh, you know, your, your attention to your emotion, your clarity and understanding emotion, your ability to repair those emotional states within yourself, and then also the ability to just cognitively think about your feelings. They, they showed, I'm going to just skip to this next slide because I actually have the, the data on this next slide. They showed uh, two incredibly strong correlations, I, actually three, but I, I lumped two of them together. So with, with all of the things that you could ask through these other three survey tools, positive affect and negative affect together were the two biggest correlates. So th this is, I think this kind of, uh, this kind of surprised the, um, the researchers a little bit. And you'll see in some of their conclusion and discussion remarks it leads them to believe more research needs to be done to really objectify this because this is a kind of a chicken and egg argument, like which is coming first. So a person who has a positive affect, like, and I'll give you some examples. You know, I've, I've talked to you guys in the past about how every single year I, I pick a personality trait or a habit within myself and, and that becomes my new year's resolution. I write it on my schedule right in front of me. So I see it every day. And this becomes kind of a, a self-analytical, habit-changing goal for me. Um, one year, you guys will, will remember me discussing this, I, I, I completely scrubbed the word busy from my life. I got so sick of hearing every single person I asked, hey, how you doing? Busy, I'm busy, gosh, so busy, so busy, 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 busy. And I noticed that I would say that. And then I thought, you know, what am I really saying? It's a self-defeating mantra because every time I reply that I'm busy, it makes me feel stressed. It makes me feel less life satisfaction. It makes me feel like I should be making changes in my life. Uh, and, and so I decided I'm never going to say that again. Whenever somebody asks how I'm doing or anytime I feel like I have too much to do, I immediately reframe that word busy to opportunity. I have all of this opportunity. I get to choose what to do. I get to choose what to prioritize. Instead of the chaotic feeling of the word busy, I have a very constructive, positive way to frame it. And I'm telling you, that changed my life. Over the course of a year, consciously, subconsciously, that had impact. And that's positive affect. That's somebody who goes from glass half empty to glass half full, having just, and all that, that's just words, right? That's just, that's just positive affect. That's, that's, that's being a positive person. But again, chicken or the egg, which comes first? Is it, is it that I, I reframe that in my language, in my self-talk, and then I start living it. And then as I start living it, it gets reinforced emotionally. And so, and, and it is, it's a, it's a definitely a spiraling, you know, entwined kind of phenomena. But what was interesting, so, so these are not far apart. If, if you look at those scores, the, the, the best way to think about this is a 58% and a 51% score is when you look at all of the traits that they were studying, all the behaviors, 
they would say just having a positive affect that that particular scale that that looked at the the mood analytics uh 58% of those people would would have the higher end of 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 the life satisfaction so no matter what they were talking about there were questions remember that talked about how you can name your emotions how you manage emotions uh can you be very clear about it uh, do you feel good at repairing, you know, negative emotional states? All of that aside, those all had impact, but the single biggest one was just simply being a positive person. A positive person had the highest life satisfaction. The people who had the lowest negativity affect scores also had the highest. So that goes hand in hand, right? If you're going to be positive, you can't be negative. So those two traits, hand in hand, dictated everything. But again, as the researchers may have concluded, I'll, I'll let you decide with their their final remarks. You, you know, does that does that really correlate to emotional intelligence? Are we going to call just having a positive attitude emotional intelligence, or are there other things underneath that? Are, are there certain traits that we could classify as emotionally intelligent that simply lead people to be positive? Because I can tell you. Just making that trait of controlling the emotion of stress in my life, controlling the emotion of anxiety in my life, even though I was looking at a very specific behavioral set of, of traits, it made me a more positive person. So, so I, I think that's the answer. I, I, think, I think any good psychologist would say that positivity and lower negativity is a result of having better emotional intelligence. So the other thing that uh, that they talked about was just that clarity. The other thing that really made the biggest difference, you know, a 32% difference in correlation was the fact that you were just clear. You were able to understand, you, you, you could articulate an understanding of your emotional state. So those were the three things that had the biggest impact. And so th these particular researchers decided, okay, we're, we're getting close to a definition. We're getting close to being able to just prove, you know, some of Dr. Goldman's original assertions, which are that emotional intelligence is a thing, like it's very, very valid. And the fact that, you know, here's how we need to start thinking about regulating that or improving it in people. That's what we're going to talk about next. But let me let me read their conclusion first, at least a couple of sentences. The findings of the present study provide further support for the notion that emotional intelligence accounts for individual differences in life satisfaction. Consistent with previous research, positive affect was found to be the strongest predictor of life satisfaction, accounting for the majority of variance in uh, satisfaction with life survey scores. However, one component of EI, clarity, was found to add a statistically significant increase to the prediction of, of life satisfaction over and above positive negative affect. So I'm going to skip down a little bit here. Um, the findings of the current study provide preliminary empirical evidence, strong language, that emotional intelligence specifically how clearly individuals tend to experience their emotions accounts for further variance in this important human value. So I, I like that they, number one, use the, the framing empirical evidence, but this is an important phrase too. I, I want you to lean into this one. I want you to remember this phrase, how clearly individuals experience their emotions. Because we don't know how somebody else is experiencing their emotions. 
And I would ask the question, do we know how we are experiencing our, our emotions? Do, are we aware that we could experience them differently? Are we aware that we have a level of control over that? So that's, that's a fundamental finding of this. But here's, here's what um, you know, always kind of validates good research to me it is when all is said and done, the numbers are crunched and everybody's looking at how they can interpret this research. You know, that most good authors of research will say, okay, here's what we found, but man, here's what I wish some, you know, other research would, would look into because here's what could make this field of study even better. So further research in this area with larger sample sizes and a wider battery of measures is needed in order to substantiate the contribution of emotional intelligence to life satisfaction. At present, there are both self-report and performance-based measures of EI. Uh, it has been argued that performance-based measures should yield higher predictive valid, uh, validity. So what they're talking about is actually doing research that would be more quantitative instead of self-reported surveys on how you think, how you feel, trying to discern how people express and interpret and feel their own emotions. You know, are there ways to measure that in actual studies? And certainly there are. You know, you could put people in different contexts. Like my, my daughter, who is a psychology student right now, she just went through that famous study where they had people inflict pain on other people. So they had one set of people who were the subjects, and then they had actors who were to feel pain. And so they would tell people, you guys are probably familiar with this study. They would tell you as the subject, like I'm in there, I signed up for this study. And they would say, okay, you've got this dial and there's a person on the other side of this two-way mirror. You can see them, but they can't see you. They don't know who you are. But for you to do this research, this is kind of like a lie detector test. Uh, every time they give you a wrong answer, you know, you have to crank up this dial and it administers an electric shock. And, and, and as we go through the study, it's going to be like a certain amount of questions and you're going you're gonna to increase more and more pain. And so these actors on the other side, it was almost like being in the electric chair, like they would scream in pain uh, and, and they were testing while somebody was telling these subjects, you signed up for this study, you have to physically induce pain to another human being. The, you know, it's pretty bizarre. Like some people would go all the way. They would just almost to the point of death. They just keep cranking it up and saying, okay, I guess I have to do it because somebody's telling me to do it. Other people would bow out pretty early and say, there's no way I'm doing this. You know, I don't care. Don't, don't pay me for the study. I'm out. So those are ways you can test psychology concepts, social psychology concepts, you know, that aren't just self-reported. You can, you can, you can get out of the survey realm and do so, some actual studies like that. Then that's what just simply doesn't exist. This is too new of a field and not a lot of people have looked at ways to try and objectively measure emotional response. You know, that's admittedly a tough thing to do. But I think this is going to make a lot of sense to you guys. Uh, let me see. Did I read what I went? Yeah, I think I did. Um, so I, as we as we kind of shift into some application, I, I, I would love to hear your thoughts on some of these things. But I want to I want to go through a list of what this means to me. You know, in my experience and in my own self development, some of the things that I have encountered that help me understand self awareness emotional intelligence, self-efficacy, 
and, and how we can make these things work for us. So first of all, I have to ask the question, and, and I want you guys to really think about some of the most profound memories you've ever had. Um, every single culture, um, the scientific community, and especially when you get into religion, we all have these, these labels and categories and concepts of, of enlightenment, and sometimes you, you have kind of these breakthrough moments. Remember, neurally, the, the, the brain is very plastic, right? So you, you guys have heard terms like that. Um, you've heard me discuss how it takes 6, 9, 12 months for new neuronal connections to happen. You know, synapses grow. Different neurons create new connections to other neurons. Different parts of your brain can communicate with other parts of your brain in new ways, uh, we get very set in channels because what fires together wires together. So these habits of when we have a feeling, we have a certain emotional response and when we get that emotional response, we have a behavior. You know, we get very reflexive like that. And I mentioned last week when we were talking about the science of parental impact on childhood relationships to food. How, you know, the mom who's like, oh, every time you scrape your knee, every time you're sad, oh, here, little Johnny, here's a popsicle. Let's soothe that pain with sugar. Every time you're sad, oh, here, you know, come out, come out for ice cream with mommy. I know your friends are mean to you, little Susie. We'll get you some ice cream and we'll, you'll feel better. So we learn to soothe emotions, any ill feeling with food. You know, you are, you are firing those synapses together and you are wiring those synapses together. So that becomes for life now, your, your reflexive way to cope with emotion is food. So, so that, that's an important concept is just the fact that we can have that kind of impact. There are things in our brains that we may want to rewire. We want to be different. We want to have different behaviors. And at some points in our lives, when that happens, when we have a breakthrough, it feels like something big happened. It feels like we have become a different person. And so we use words like born again. We use words like uh, enlightenment. We use words like maturity or breakthrough, like a therapeutic breakthrough. And I'm telling you, those are things that are just happening under the surface. You know, a lot of thought, a lot of a lot of mental subconscious energies going to those things. And, and your brain is responding. Your brain is rewiring synapses and neurons together. And then finally, it's almost like a dam. Like if you're building a, a dam or a channel to divert a flow of water, like a river, and then one day the final block is in place and whoosh, everything goes in the other direction. Like that's what it feels like mentally and emotionally and cognitively when we have a breakthrough like that. And so here are just some ways that, that different people, philosophers and psychologists have described this. And, and before I get into that, I, I want to tell you a couple of these times for me. Um, I, I shared this on our podcast this week in mind muscle connection. When I was seven, eight, nine years old, something like that, you know, I grew up on a little hobby farm. And so, you know, we had, I don't know, you know, 70 acres or some amount of acres. And I would, uh, I would, I would ride my bike behind our house into this field. So maybe, I don't know, you know, several hundred yards, maybe a quarter of a mile. 
And, and in between the fields, there was this berm. So kind of a little hill where there were a, a row of trees. And as a little boy, I would just, you know, back then without the internet, without video games, you know, you, you this is what we did. You, you took your slingshot, your BB gun, your baseball mitt on your bike, and you just, you just went out for the day to be with friends. Well, sometimes on days I couldn't do that with other people. I would still just, you know, go out in the woods and play and so forth. And I remember this day just laying back. I had, you know, parked my bike and I'm just laying on this hill and I'm just looking at the sky and I'm, I'm looking at clouds. I'm looking at this blue sky and, and in, you know, some prepubescent eight, nine, 10 year old way, I just had this incredible feeling of autonomy. Like I'm, I'm a real person. I'm, I'm distinct. I'm different from my parents. I'm different from my siblings. I can be out here in the woods by myself. And I like that. I like being in control of my own life. And I just laid there. It seemed like for hours, just watching the clouds and just thinking these deep thoughts. And, and I said to myself in my brain, for some reason, I have no idea why, I will never forget this moment as long as I live. It, it, whatever I was feeling, whatever surge of dopamine, serotonin, it, it felt so good. I said, I will never forget this moment. And here we are 42, 45 years later, and, and I'm still talking about the impact I had because subsequently I've had many other impactful moments like that where I read a certain thing. I hear like I understand something, something that I didn't understand before, something I'd been thinking about and struggling with. And then all of a sudden, like, boom, there's that moment of enlightenment. Those are the times we remember. And, and, and I want you to think about this because when I was listening to Daniel Goleman's book, Emotional Intelligence, it was, it was an audio book. I was driving on Interstate 64. I don't know. I think I was coming from Columbus, Ohio, or maybe maybe it was even you know West Virginia at, at Steve Dodd's place. But uh, it was in the afternoon. The sun was in my face. I was driving by myself on Interstate 64, listening to Daniel Goleman's emotional intelligence, and he talked about this concept of self-efficacy and self-determination and even determinism. And everything just clicked. It just clicked for me. And I had this, again, new realization of how much control I had over my own life. And I can describe those exact moments of where I was, how I was feeling, what I was doing, because it just had that much of a freeze frame moment. And, and I think that's an important way for you to think about how we we interact with our own thoughts. The, the whole process of emotional intelligence is understanding how we think about thinking, our ability to be that omnipotent narrator of our lives. If we're stuck in the emotion, if, if everything is always chaotic to us and we're always reacting and we're always impulsive, that is low emotional intelligence. That is not going to lead you to higher life satisfaction it's not going to lead you to great self-regulatory decisions that progress your life. It's just not. So let me let me zip through these and then we can chat about them. So Nietzsche famously, you know, talked a lot about the herd versus the Ubermensch. And Ubermensch in German is translated literally Superman or like mini God. So he said, you know, most people are going to go through their lives and they're just going to go with a herd. They're just a pack animal. They do what the other pack, you know, rest of the pack does. And they, they feel no, no control. They feel very 
unsatisfied, and they're just a pack animal doing what pack animals do. They're part of the herd. But every once in a while, you find a person who rises above that, who seems to have this super level of self-control and self-determination. And, and, and that's why he wrote famously, uh, uh, God is dead. Because he said, once people figure out that no one's coming to save us, that you are literally in control of your own life, he said, you're going to have a lot of people who can get a lot of shit done and they can have very happy lives and they're not going to bow down to other people enslaving them, you know, physically or emotionally, occupationally, you're going to see these people rise up and, and it's going to be different. He said, that's a, that's a societal evolutionary uh, phenomena. And I would argue he's right. Um Viktor Frankl, uh, the psychiatrist who created the field of logotherapy, uh, he, cre- he actually created it, uh, if, you, if you're not familiar with his work, uh, Man's Search for Meaning. Uh, he had his whole doctoral dissertation done. Matter of fact, uh, it's reported that he had a copy with him when he went to Auschwitz. So he lost his mother, his father, his siblings, his wife, everybody in his family died in Auschwitz. And he lived and he had done all of his work in in the field of medicine and psychiatry to get to the point of creating this this concept of logotherapy. And then it all cemented for him in these prison camps because he saw people just give up and die. And then he saw people fight to the end and survive and they would do whatever it took to survive. And in his mind, he, he thought, why, like, what's the difference? Why are so many people willing to suffer, 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 toil and survive? And other people just rolled over and died. Just say, yeah, just kill me. And, and this is where, you know, Simon Sinek, of course, the Ted talk famous guy, um, you know, kind of stole this from Viktor Frankl. He, he logotherapy answers the question. Why, if you feel you have a purpose, that's why he wrote his book, man's search for meaning. If you have a purpose that can drive you more than anything else, you feel so tied to something, you've, you've found life, you found meaning, you, you're going to score high on life satisfaction, you're going to be a happier person. And so having that sense of purpose, I think we can relate to that positive affect, you know, that's certainly part of this research. Uh Peter Wessel Zapfa, who is, uh, I think he's Danish, some, some Nordic state, um, he was a psychiatrist more than 100 years ago. He wrote what, what is my absolute famous piece of literature in the world. He wrote this essay called The Last Messiah. And it is just phenomenal. When you read the translation of this, it, it's something that I read multiple times a year just to, just to be awed by it. But it, 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 it's an essay that talks about man's struggle with just living. I mean, think about all the reasons we go to counseling or go through therapy and the reasons we're trying to figure out life. And, and uh, you know, even just the question, like if you go to Albert Camus, one of the most famous existential philosophers in his book, The Myth of Sisyphus, his entire opening line in argument is, the first thing a human being has to do is decide whether or not to kill him or herself. That, that's your whole goal in life. You decide right now whether you want to blow your brains out or live. Because until you answer that question dogmatically, you're not going to know why you even want to live. 
And so we struggle, we struggle. Life is hard. Life is good. Oh, here's a good moment. Here's some horrible moments. You know, all of Buddhism, the Buddha said life is suffering. That's the central tenet of, of Buddhism. Uh, and so since we know life is going to be that difficult, we can set our expectations to say, so what? Okay, we know it's difficult for most people, but I'm going to choose to live and I'm going to choose to live with a sense of purpose and a sense of wonder and a sense of excellence. So yes, I'm going to decide that life is worth living and I'm going to you know, move forward on that. Uh, Irving Yalom, Ernest Becker, another like late, you know, the most modern kind of existentialist, same thing. They talk about the fact that we have this kind of white noise of death anxiety uh, where we're constantly dreading things, you know, that, that may or may not happen. We live in that sense of futuristic fear, but also just, you know, that that's the curse of consciousness is mortality. And, and our behaviors change based on how we address that. And then, of course, you get to Robert Sapolsky, uh, one of the most brilliant evolutionary biologists, primatologists of our time, professor at uh, just retired from Stanford, and the whole concept of determinism. I'm not going to get into all, all, all these, uh, but, but Hobbes, if you go to the Enlightenment philosophers like Hobbes and Locke and Hume and Descartes and Bacon and Spinoza, all those guys, Hobbes was very, very famous in that he talked about the concept of the Leviathan. When man has this anxiety about how can I live? Do I have control of my life? Do I have control of my own emotion? You know, or am I just reacting to all these external forces? He said that, that mankind, he's one of the first people to articulate something that you're going to be familiar with. We're willing to trade a certain amount of freedom for a certain amount of security. So the reason we create governments and rules and law is to say, okay, as long as I know how everybody else is supposed to behave, I can live a little bit freer in that society. I don't have to worry about every time I go somewhere, I'm going to get murdered or something like that. And so the Leviathan is like government, it's, it's structure, it's external constructs. And again, that allows us a certain amount of mental freedom to then live our lives how we want. We give up some control so that we can control other things within our lives. So all of these people, I'm just throwing them out there very eclectically to show you that almost every single psychologist, psychiatrist, philosopher, they all come back to answering these same questions. Is life worth living? If so, how do I do it? How do I get some level of contentment and happiness and, and I, I think Daniel Goleman, coming back to emotional intelligence, does have the first step exactly correct. You have to have some level of internal emotional regulation. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna give credit to uh, Dr. Corey Probst, who's our health psychologist inside the Diadoc, uh, because I think she has a great illustration of explaining how we can be that outside third-party omnipotent narrator. So when you get stuck in these emotions or you feel like, oh my gosh, I'm going to binge or why do I always emotionally eat or why can't I stay aligned to this goal or why can't I stay motivated to go work out or anything outside of the realm of, of health and fitness, she'll say, okay, you have to learn, as Viktor Frankl said, to recognize that there's that gap. We've talked about this before 
you have this feeling, you have this external force, this external pressure, normally you would react this way. Well, let's pause right there in that gap. Let's stop and think. As a matter of fact, let's step out for a second and let's view this situation as if it's on a marquee or a movie screen. It's not just me, 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 and what's happening in my head. It's like, okay, here's what's happening to this character who happens to be me. These are the circumstances and external forces. What would be the best thing for that character me to do? And so you start to, to keep one eye on the externalization of your life, and you can make better emotionally regulated decisions that way. So in summary... I believe emotional intelligence is a thing, as this research was looking to to prove. And to their initial conclusions, which I would agree, you know, more objective research would be great. uh, It can be determined by your ability to identify positively frame versus negatively frame and then repair or control your own emotional reactions to your circumstances. So all of that said, what do you guys think? I uh, probably talked a little bit too long there, but very, very interested. You guys can just feel free to unmute and uh, throw out some comments. I'm going to read the chat here. Kevin, yes, he's uh, Kevin and I actually interstate 64 connects Kevin to me. We're like four hours away. Good, good notes there. Uh, that, that's why I do that. So Kevin, I have to say, another habit I have is at least once a year, I take a solo road trip. Um, I'll, I'll find a way. I mean, I travel enough that I'll always find a way that, you know, this is a place that, you know, it's close enough to drive to, you know, six, eight hours. And I always do it kind of in the summer or something, fall where it's a nice drive. But man, I, I dig that. I, as an introvert, I need that solitary time to think and, and some of my, you know, some of my best ideas and reflections and just, you know, then forward growing ideas come from those times of just being alone where you can think about your thinking. Otherwise, we're always so distracted. Any, uh, any other thoughts? You guys, anybody want to jump in with your audio and video? Mike Poe? I used to, I used to really hate having to travel for, uh, it's always, I, I said, if, if it's an hour and a half, I'll drive it. Mm. Right. And if, and then, then, but I always kind of hated thinking, man, I got three extra hours on the road and stuff. But what I found out was my free time was so much better because my hour and a half to work got me prepared. I mm. did my day's work and my hour and a half home got me to filter through everything, make whatever phone calls I needed to make. And then once I did get home, I was done. I had a bad habit of coming, you know, if I had a 45 minute commute or a half hour commute, be like, yeah, I'll get that in a little bit. And I get into something, get into something, then it'd be almost bedtime and I got to start catching up. So that, that right there did seem to, I, at first I hated it, but once I got past hating it, I I, I liked it. Awesome. That's awesome. I I agree. Um, I've kind of done the same thing. Like I, my wife and I travel together you know, to work back and forth a lot of days. And it's about a 20, 25 minute drive. And it's obviously not a long travel, but uh, there are sometimes I'm, I like kind of being there by myself where again, you can, you can think through some things. Yeah. And it's kind of funny that I've, as you're, as you're moving and you're able to, if you're able to choose your own music, 
Like if you're if you're stuck to a radio station and then the radio goes out, but then you can turn on your Spotify or whatever, how how easily music will change. I mean, music re replaces hopelessness with hope faster than anything in the world. I mean, it's just it's amazing how that happens. Your mindset changes. I mean, it is it is a pretty neat transition. Yeah. And, and again, that just shows how powerful emotion is. And uh, everybody loves this with kids. Like when my grandson, who is now a year old, when he was like four or five months old, part of my job, like my, my quality time with him is when my daughter comes in to work out with my wife. And then I have Truett for an hour, three times a week while they're working out. So typically I'm wandering around the gym with them and so forth. And with it, we, you know, as soon as he was about three, four months old, we would notice like when certain songs come on, he, he starts to do this with his hand. Like he would just, he had this hand motion he would do. And it's one of those things like you go to concerts today and what do you see? You see people doing that, right? It's one of the most, you know, universal signs of just like excitement. Um, <clears throat> and now we notice it's always certain music, right? Because we use beat and melody and rhythm to add excitement, you know, from a four count to an eight count and all that. Um, <clears throat> there's one song that it's, it's funny because it's an awful, awful song. Um, but it's got this, it's got this just great rhythmic chorus and beat to it. So that's his favorite song. <clears throat> I mean, nothing will get him faster to do that. But yesterday he was at the other side of the gym when it came on, when he heard that song, his head just whipped around and he ran as fast as he could to the speaker. And this time it wasn't just this motion. This time he started moving his whole body and then he just started spinning around in circles and it's like, you know, it's what you said, Mike. I mean, that's, it's not just music. It, it shows how impactful our emotions can be. And if we're not in control of those, and I often, like you said, Mike, I will use music to change my mood, you know, very intentionally. But um, I, I'm going to read before I think Amanda's going to jump on here. Uh, feel free, Amanda, if you're going to. But I, I love what you said, Andrea, about using breath work and journaling. I love to write to sort out my emotions. That's probably why I am a writer. Um, but when I was going through some emotionally turbulent times to try and figure out where I wanted to go in some major parts of my life, I created this notebook and it's still in my drawer over here, a three ring binder. And I called it my life schema notebook. And I put, I, I would put certain articles. I would put certain things in some thoughts. I would journal and I was using this as an external map of assessing where I am now, what I need to do to get to a better place, and what that better place was going to look like. So I was creating a visual, literal map of changing my neural networks and um, just going through some of these concepts, some of these philosophers and looking at how people through the centuries have struggled with and described those same things. It's incredibly helpful to just sit in that stuff. You can't you can't just listen to one podcast and think you figured everything out. You know, neuroplasticity and neural change is a slow moving ship. So you gotta you gotta stay in that game. You have to make it a process. Matter of fact, Tyler Weeb, who I chose to do our Mind Muscle Connection podcast with, he's been in therapy for four years. He goes to individual therapy, a, a, a psychologist, a mental health therapist is like a coach for what I'm describing. Just like many of us are coaches for the physical nature of our clients. We're working on nutrition, health, body composition, fitness. You know, a, a great counselor is doing that for your brain. And uh, I think that's phenomenal. 
So any more thoughts? Thanks for that, Mike. Go ahead, Amanda. Or maybe not. Yes. Maybe. Trying to unmute. Um, I think that this topic is very, very good topic to talk about because there's so many factors. Um, whether it be, you know, along the lines of nutrition and, and um, physical fitness or just, you know, emotional well-being, um, especially, you know, it being Veterans Day that just passed. And I don't, I've lost so many um, friends from suicide. Um, it, it's, it's a very um, hard topic to think about. And it, a lot of people don't realize um, what a big problem that is. So um, when you talk about like the different personalities, it's very intriguing and it, it, it's just mind blowing to see someone that um, can just come up to you and have a great conversation with you and they seem completely fine. And you would just never know that they're suffering so much that they would just say, I'm done and end it. So um, yeah, therapy is, is definitely something that um, is necessary in situations like that. And uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I, I just, I really appreciate um, this research study because it hits on so many different um, factors. So. Well, I, I am glad you brought that up. And since I had brought up the concept of suicide by Albert Camus, um, first of all, I have to say, I am a fan of as much autonomy as we can have as individuals, including the right to safely and humanely end our own lives. That said, I often think of the people who seem to do it out of a level of impulsivity and just a, just a magnitude of pain that they're feeling that, that we may never understand. It always makes me think, man, if they could have just had one more conversation with the right person, you know, what could have changed? Because I know a lot of people who have had very significant, serious suicidal thoughts who did not do that. And five years later, 10 years later, they're like, wow, like glad I didn't do that because look, look how my life is now. Um, so again, it's, you know, those are the two sides of the coin, but it's, it, it's that kind of emotional regulation. Like think of that person perhaps in the, those throes of PTSD from being in a war <clears throat> and they just don't have those skills. I mean, at, at our last apex conference, one of my coaches who was a, a, you know, he is a veteran and he does have pretty severe PTSD and he does go through a lot of counseling and it, even a lot of pharmacological, you know, experimental support. Um, greatest guy in the world. I mean, unbelievable sense of humor, amazing. And, and yet he'll say, yeah, my, my brain is broke. Like it doesn't work like it did before I went to war and I'm working very hard to get well again. You know, he's got a wife, he's got kids. And I'm sure he's had those thoughts of like, this is, this fight is no longer worth it. But at the same time, he does have a strong why he does have a strong sense of purpose. He does have a strong sense of hope for creating something better. And man, every single person, whether you're a teenager or a veteran or anybody who's just lost something that significant, 
I, I, again, I just come back to that thought, you know, how many people are just not getting the support they need? Just, just one hug, one conversation, one person to say, I'll help you through this. It's, it's, it's numbing how much impact that could have. And often we just, we just don't make those connections. So good, good, good topic point there. I think that there's a lot to be said about like people putting like a negative stigma on therapy or having someone to talk to, because I, I know that there's a lot of people are just like suffering and they refuse to seek help. So I think that that's something that needs to be addressed to, to just be able to say, you know what, like take a knee. I, I just need to talk to someone. Uh, yeah. I, I mean, again, I'm, you just made me think of something else that I think is worth saying, and, and I'll be very brief, Stacey, you can stay unmuted and jump in. Uh, when I decided, I don't know, eight, nine, 10 years ago that I wanted to see a therapist individually, um, I, I did pursue it as a, a support structure. And I looked for somebody who was very specialized, just like I would as a coach. You know, if my son wanted a baseball coach or my other son wanted a vocal coach, like you go to those people who are expert in those things. So I sought out an anxiety therapist who specialized in exactly what I was feeling anxious about, ended up creating this teletherapy relationship with a, a psychologist in California. Had a great result, great relationship with him. It was phenomenal. And then I decided, you know what? There are other people and other perspectives. Like I, I have two or three personal friends who are mental health therapists, and, and I know how different they are temperamentally and with their approach. So I went ahead and worked with three or four more therapists, almost in succession. It's like, okay, I want to see what this person says, and I want to see what this person can do, and I want to see this approach. And I just, you know, I wasn't just shopping and hopping to find somebody that would tell me what I wanted to hear. I was looking for different voices to really get the broadest perspective on this thing that I cared so much about. And, and it was just brilliant. It was just, like you said, it's not, it's not it should not be a negative connotation. It's just finding people who are smart and mature and have experience in the things that can help you. Go, go ahead, Stacy. Well, I definitely think that music, I, there was a trainer that I had for a brief amount of time. And can you imagine, I mean, this trainer, you talk about, what is it? being neurotic so the temperature in the gym had to be like 62.5 degrees and he had lots of he had a, a whole list of reasons scientific reasons why we needed to work out in a gym that was 62.5 degrees um, and when you were there you did not talk you didn't turn your head you could only say yes or no if he asked you a question. And you can look and there was no music, none. And I mean, I mean, you couldn't wear earbuds. Like you couldn't, there was no, there was nothing. You couldn't complain. Like you couldn't, you know, like if he said, if that hurts, then you could say yes, but you couldn't turn in your head and say yes. And I was like, this just is such a buzzkill. Yeah, I mean, I knew it was a good workout, but there was no ability to engage with another person 
whatsoever, or you didn't know anybody that went there, not, nothing. So it, 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 let, me, let me put this back in some of the frameworks that we've talked about. So that's a person who obviously is off the chart in neuroticism and conscientiousness. And so who's going to love that kind of training approach? The same people. That person. The right. Same, right. Yeah. And other like, people are going to be like, oh, my God, I got to get out of here. Um, yeah, because, you know, they they're not wanting to interact at all. You know what I mean? Like they're wanting to stay in that zone. Um, my thing for my clients in applying emotional intelligence um, and how to help them. Yeah. The workout Nazi to say the least. And, you know, he said he was the very best. <clears throat> Anyways. Um, so, you know, everybody has a lot, a lot of stress, a lot of problems, a lot of things going on, a lot of moving parts. A lot of them have gone to a whole slew of therapists and I try to like stay back enough that I can hear them recognize this, but then help them move towards uh, uh, achieving a goal that we're trying to get to together. Because I feel like for the people that come into this, there's like this category of clients or people that we meet that um, and I'm all about going to therapy. I don't ever think that anybody should be ashamed about talking about that. You would never be ashamed about talking about blood pressure or anything like that. So why would we even consider not being, uh, not talking about something if we uh, are getting help to treat an organ that we feel needs, we need to address. <clears throat> but if you are doing something for years and years and years and years and years, and you know you have these problems, 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 and the same thing over and over, and nothing's changing, then how do you, as coaches, how do we determine how we can help them be successful when they're seeking professional guidance to address an issue and, and nothing's getting better. They're coming to you because they failed in some respect with their wellness or nutrition or health. Um, and they have a whole list of reasons why they have issues, body issues, food issues, sugar issues, going back, I blame my mother. I have this relationship with my father. Like it goes on and on. So where do we as coaches coach them? It's, it, it's such a, Phenomenal question. I'm glad we're ending it on this note, Stacy, because as clients and coaches, this, this is probably the single biggest stumbling block in, in clients moving forward and coaches being able to help that process. So <clears throat> the exact wrong thing to do is to blame that person. You know, you're just not working hard enough. You're not smart enough. You're not, you don't have enough willpower. Uh, but if you go back to the whole concept of motivational interviewing, which we talked about it at the Apex Conference, and it, it, it's so difficult to do. It's so difficult for me because I'm so academic minded. Like as soon as somebody has these struggles, I want to dump all kinds of information. Like here, here are the answers. Here they are. Just, just do this and you'll be great. But the brain doesn't work like that. And going back to neuroplasticity, the best thing to do, because anybody who feels threatened 
even by, if you just say, do this, or this is the reason, you instantly make somebody feel less than, they feel defective, they feel like you're now in this position and they're down here. So you have to maintain this equilibrium of being an ally. And the best way to do that is ask self-directed questions. You could say, so because again, I've had plenty of clients like this where they're just year after year after year gaining weight back. They're not getting anywhere. And instead of creating any kind of superiority teaching, do this kind of complex, just say, you know what? I wonder how other people have succeeded. Like, have you noticed any patterns between people who, who have already made it to where you want to go? Or let's look at look, let's look at areas you've succeeded in life. Like this is a tough situation for you, and I get it. What are what are some areas that you've really succeeded in? And let's talk about what you did to succeed there. And then that skill transference. You know, again, if if you're just asking the questions, you're you're eye to eye level with them, and that's the difference. That's the whole concept of motivational interviewing: is let them discover the answers. Because you're just peeling a curtain back one step at a time, letting a little light in so they can see the answer for themselves. That's, that is the only thing that works, Stacey, and I'm horrible at it. I'm, I'm doing everything I can to be better at it, but uh, it does not come naturally. Well, but you know what, though? I, I'm, I'm not, I, I didn't know that this was the right thing to do, but I will say that this is the part that comes naturally to me because- I, I wholeheartedly believe that whoever I'm talking to on the other end, they're good at something. They're proud of something. There's something that they aspire to be or somebody that motivate, that is their inspiration. And just, I just, my brain wants to know that because I just think, okay, that's our first way to be successful is use what they're good at and pull it into this. That's, sure. but I, I need, I want to find out what it is and I don't have any idea what it is, but I always, my brain just wants to know, like, like I just wants to know. Mm-hmm. And, and then I try to think about ways to pull them in. So I'm glad that that's a good thing that I do because I just didn't know it. That's just my nosiness. And in my way, as a coach, or even on a team that I'm working with, I want to use that person to the best of their ability so we can reach our goals, period. Like, that's just all I'm thinking. Like, okay, we can get our goals. So he's good at this. It's like a, it's like a relay team, right? Mm -hmm. The fastest, we're going to have our fastest people front and last, like bring them in, you know? So, you know, then we put the rest in the middle. So that's why these resources on motivational interviewing are so important. And there are many from different perspectives, but a good book or, you know, article on motivational interviewing will give you actual questions. Like here are thought provoking, good questions to ask somebody, not even just as a coach, but maybe as a parent, maybe as a spouse, maybe as a friend, like, you know, if you want to be the person who's always supportive and you always have great relationships with people, learn how to ask these questions. Don't, don't tell people what to do. Don't tell people what you think is wrong with them. Don't tell them anything. Ask these questions and you'll have the greatest conversations of your life, you know, including in this coaching relationship. Well, I'm going to get the book so I can have the official good. 
I, I've even, like I said, I've read articles that have great ones. You could just, you could just Google articles on motivational interview. You get a million ideas.